0: Hi there, I'm Leah.
1: And I'm Andrew.
0: Welcome to Apologetic Simplified, where we seek to foster discipleship and evangelism through apologetics and theology.
1: To keep up with everything we're doing, you can subscribe and also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also contact us at apologeticsimplified at gmail.com.
0: Welcome back to Apologetics Simplified. We are so glad that you are here. We're going to be taking a few weeks break from world religions and because we've got some other exciting stuff we want to talk to you about, including today we have our first returning guest who's not family. (laughs) (laughs) I love our family, but I feel like they can't quite count as our returning guests. Mm. You know? Yeah, we love them and they're (laughs) like, you know most of our listeners but um yeah so we're glad we have <laughs> we have caitlin Shesh back on the podcast she was here in january and we were just saying how weird it is that january was the same year as the one we're in right now it's impossible <laughs> like we met in person we were so like we were way within six feet of each other like yeah no masks just crazy <laughs> oh what a world Um, but if you haven't listened to that podcast and a bit of a refresher, Caitlin is a master of theology student from Dallas Theological Seminary, which is how we met. And she holds a BA in history from Liberty University. And Caitlin is coming out with her very first book, Liturgy of Politics. A week from today a week from when this is posted and so we're very excited to be able to talk about this book um in more detail I have had the joy of being on her launch team launch team launch team Georgia (laughs) um and being able to read it early so that's been a lot of fun and I'm just yeah real excited to have you back on so how are you today Caitlin?
2: Yeah, good. Thanks for thanks for having me. Today's the the first day back at school, so it's a little uh, strange right. to be around all these people like all at once.
0: I mean, masked and safe, but um, adjusting to new normal. <laughs> yes, for sure. It's amazing that schools are back in session. I don't say that as like a judgment thing. It's just,
1: it yeah,
0: just is. it's just crazy. Yeah.
1: So um, as you just mentioned, DTS just started a new semester. Um, so what class are you most looking forward to?
2: Oh, that's such a fun question. Um, <laughs> so actually, this semester, um, a couple of my classes I'm taking are sort of like, you know, they're on the list of ones you have to do. And you're kind of, oh, yeah. you know, checking. Yeah. <laughs> You, I love the Bible. I'm so excited to learn about it. But you know, they're just kind of ones you have to do. Yes. Um, but I am taking an elective. Uh, it's Introduction to Logic, which I'm really excited about. I was a debater in college. So in terms of like that kind of logic of... You know, looking at political issues and like foreign policy issues and like putting, you know, different pieces together. I've got that. But this is symbolic logic. So it's a lot more technical. It's a little bit more like math is what I've been told, which is terrifying. Um, But we get to evaluate um, a passage of scripture and a sermon for their like logical structure, which will be really interesting. So that's sounds really cool. Mm (laughs) I feel like it's a good uh, election season thing for everyone to just have to take a class that's like, do the things that you are saying actually follow? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And we know that many people have asked you what it's like to write a book during seminary with the basic understanding that it's pretty hard. But um, <laughs> were there aspects to seminary life and writing a book that really assisted each other?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I think it, I get why people ask the question, but for me, I thought it was more natural than not doing it in seminary because I mean, basically every opportunity I had in a class to t- write a paper that I could kind of pick the topic or pick a different book to read of the list, you know, I would just pick things in line with research for the book. And I did my internship uh, with Dr. Guan, who's a professor here who I just, she just let me write the book for my internship and kind of come to her with questions. And that was amazing. And I did an independent study with a professor who I took a class of his on, it was called contemporary or spiritual formation in contemporary culture. And we were supposed to talk about politics. We never did. So I wrote my final paper about why we should have talked about politics. (laughs) And at the end of the semester, he messaged me and was like, do you want to do an independent study where you study that? And had no idea when he messaged me that, that not long after that, I would get an email from a publisher that was like, hey, do you want to write a book? And so all of the things kind of aligned. I actually think it would be a lot harder to spend a significant amount of time studying and thinking about these kinds of things without kind of the structure of school, but then also without like all of the people, you know, professors and also fellow students. And um, the class that Lee and I had together, it's like we had so many conversations about current events that if it was just me at home reading theology books, that would be great. But it wouldn't be the same as having all those people to kind of challenge your ideas and build on them. Or I don't even know how many things I learned in that class, because someone said something that I either agreed with, and then I kind of had a corresponding thought, or someone said something that I disagreed with. And I was like, Oh, I actually understand better my own position because of that thing that you said. And I, I can't imagine doing this without that kind of community.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I you know, I just graduated and I keep thinking like, what am I gonna do now that I'm not in class all the time, like constantly receiving great information from these amazing professors and these thoughtful classmates? It's so weird. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: You'll just have to do some more school.
0: Yeah, well that's what I'm trying to figure out.
1: <laughs> How does Dr. Leah Chapman sound?
0: That sounds great. Yeah, I know. It's the whole it's the whole get in there process. Yeah. All right. Well, we will continue um, and talk more in detail about this book in just a few moments after our segment break, Sayeth What.
1: Sayeth Sayeth What! What?
0: The segments this week are going to be a little bit different. I am doing Sayeth What, and Andrew will be doing Newsflash, just how things work out. Usually, you know what? Usually we record together on a Sunday, because it's, especially for Newsflash, it keeps it relevant, and... Um, yeah, this Sunday just didn't happen. On top of that, my computer has decided it doesn't want to work. But that's actually not what our say what is about. Our say what is inspired about uh well the reason I was busy this Sunday is I was actually traveling, um, and we got um very stranded. Not stranded. We were in the Atlanta airport and we were trying to head home and then a bunch of little storms formed into one storm, and I was afraid we were going to get stranded because we were on this plane for an hour and a half waiting to take off. and close the runway. So the reason that I had this fear is uh, from 2017, we were on a different trip and we were trying to come home uh, a little bit early because Hurricane Harvey decided to hit the Gulf on our vacation. Thank you so much, Hurricane Harvey. So, we were leaving the country we were vacationing in and we had a connector through Houston to get home to Dallas. When we got to Houston, um you could definitely tell there was like a hurricane around, but we boarded and we waited and we waited and waited and waited. And eventually, after waiting on this plane for a couple hours and then letting us off and on to go get snacks or use a real bathroom, um, they canceled the flight. So it's like midnight and we're tired. Suddenly, uh, we start getting uh, not great updates that Southwest isn't going to be doing any flights. And in fact, the about 300 people in this airport are probably going to be stuck here for a week a week guys, a week in an airport because we couldn't get out. No one could get in because the airport had flooded so much. We, there were some people who tried and offered to come pick us up, but they just, they wouldn't have been able to get in. And even if they could, they wouldn't have been able to get out. So we are stuck in this airport, in the Houston Hobby Airport with 300 of our new best friends, some of whom were really, really not happy about being stuck. I mean, like who would be happy, right? So, we're stuck in this airport. It's me and my husband. And uh fortunately, we didn't have the dogs with us. That would have a whole nother layer. And so, we're like, okay, like, we're living in an airport for the next week. Talk about sayeth what? What in the world? But fortunately, after we had contacted our bosses to let them know, we're not going to be in because we're stuck in Houston, this whole week we started hearing some rumblings and rumors and they started pulling some people away from the crowd and then they started making some announcements that were vague but promising. Turns out the Southwest Airlines convinced the, that the FAA or the FFA, the, the flight people, the government, convinced them, the Federal Flight Administration, that's it, right? Anyway, convinced them So let us take off in the middle of this hurricane. It's like a 35, 45 minute flight to Dallas. So they are getting us on this airport, uh, these airplanes as quickly as possible. Um, You know, so many of the systems were down because of the storm and they had these handwritten boarding passes and they are just getting people on the plane as quickly as possible. But again, certain functions were down. And so they are having to hand uh, do the math to balance the plane, to be able to take off safely. So these people who were working at this airport on this particular day, the TSA agents, the pilots, um, there were chefs there who ran the restaurants, who were feeding everybody, um, the flight attendants, everyone was working their little tails off, trying to keep everyone safe and then to get us out of here. It was really incredible. We were all on the airplane, still a little nervous it was going to change, but that we did manage to take off. And by the time we got back to Dallas, it was quite, uh, we were quite happy. So we were only stuck in Houston for 24 hours, but thinking you're going to be stuck in an airport for a week is quite the, uh, quite the adventure. So moral of the story, um, don't travel during hurricane season. Perhaps that's what I've learned. But I probably haven't I probably will travel again So that's Sayeth What this week Very rainy, wet um, Fun story from the Chapman family
1: Sayeth What
0: We are back And we're going to be talking about Liturgy and Politics Caitlin Shesh's first book Of I'm sure many <laughs> So tell us about the political theology And so what is it And why does it matter yeah. So um,
2: part of the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted to have something that was accessible for people, both, um, you know, seminary students like me who maybe don't have it built into their curriculum to talk about political theology, um, but also just people at my own church that, you know, when I'm nerding out about this and they want something that's accessible and also relevant to what, you know, the questions they have now, they could have the book. Um, so what I talk about in the book very basically is just theological reflection upon political realities. Um, But I kind of want to broaden out that term political. Um, I want to talk about how we think about human government structures, particular kinds of authority and and what it means to organize communities in specific ways, but, and, and the, you know, value of different pieces of legislation and who should you vote for? Like all of those are good questions, but I think sometimes those are the first place we go instead of thinking of politics more broadly as just, how we form our life together, um, and so that happens really locally. It happens nationally, and it deserves, I think, some more reflection. And and actually, Christians have really great theological resources for thinking about communities. So when we see all of you know the way that God clearly cares about it, when He gives Israel specific instructions about how to structure their life together, how the church not only has kind of specific instructions for structuring life, but then throughout the epistles, there's all this fighting about how that should best happen because it's important and God cares about it and our leaders should care about it. Um, But sometimes all of that, we tend to think, oh, that's just like local communities, families, churches, that doesn't have anything to say about, you know, broader structures. So I wanted to, to, to take that word politics and say it encompasses all of those things. And so scripture has things to say about all of those levels. And so even if you're not the most like, Politically nerdy person. Um, you should care about the policies that affect your neighbors, especially the most vulnerable and marginalized among them. And you might actually be involved in more political things than you realize. The neighborhood that you live in probably has, you know, had different policies, especially, for example, me living in Dallas, long history of segregation that's created the, you know, particular neighborhoods that I live in, but also, you know, the fact that. When I go to work, there's laws that determine, you know, all sorts of levels of things that I do at work, our schools and how resources get allocated to school. Like all of these questions that if you have, you know, a decent kind of amount of wealth and power culturally, um, you might not have to think about all those questions, but your neighbors do. And so if as a Christian, you want to take seriously the command to love your neighbors yourself, you're going to want to think about the policies that impact them.
0: So it seems to me that most people don't think about politics as being a love your neighbor issue. Politics seems to be like a dirty word, like something you don't talk about. You don't bring up at Thanksgiving dinner. So how do you think we got to, I feel like this is a way bigger question than we have time for. So as briefly as you can, <laughs> how do we get to the place where politics is a dirty word versus how you're defining it?
2: Yeah, um, I think Two major things for us currently, there, there's kind of been, obviously, for all of the history of the church, different ways of thinking about this and different connotations. But I think now, one is evangelicalism's sort of split between material and spiritual things. And so the higher things are the spiritual things, and, and God's just going to pluck us out of this earth, and everything that happens here is just sort of unnecessary. Um so some of that is if there's anything on earth that's like super material, super earthy, it's going to be politics, right? It deals with material things and material needs that people have. And so if we're going to be hyper spiritual, then like that's the mucky under, you know, belly stuff. Yeah. Um, the second thing I think is a little bit more legitimate, seeing as that first one is like not a theological option for Christians, I don't think. Um, but the second more reasonable reason is that, I think we've just had a really messy history with it. And so the last, you know, 50 years of Christians' engagement in politics, a lot of it hasn't gone very well. And we've allowed it to become idolatrous. We've allowed, you know, other theological positions that we hold to be subordinated to whatever our party says. And I think a lot of people our age are looking at that history. I think especially the 2016 election, some of the messages they heard from pastors mm-hmm. who were saying, like, You know, I said character matters for a really long time, and now I'm not saying that or who just found really theologically just inadmissible ways of defending someone, um, defending Donald Trump, but also just of talking about politics in general. They found that really distasteful. And so I think a lot of Christians who are our age said, "Okay, well, I guess the other option that I have is just to not be involved. Like if this is going to be so messy, if it's going to divide the people in my church, if I'm going to watch pastors and leaders sort of deny things they said previously because they want to keep some political power or because they want to justify a vote or a politician, then I guess maybe the answer is that Christians should just not be involved in politics because it's gone really poorly. Mm-hmm. And I, I really resonate with that and understand that. And part of the heart of the book was to say, There is more options than that. The options are not capitulate to political power or not be involved at all. Um, Someone on the launch team posted something on Twitter, and I'm not going to be able to say it exactly right, but she basically said, the two types of Christians I've ever known are either fearfully apolitical or overly partisan. And I was like, yes, like those are the two options that I've mostly seen. And I really want to be able to say, look, these are messy issues. I don't want to deny that it's going to be hard to talk about them and to figure out what to do. But it's worthwhile work to do, especially because if your focus is on how do I make a like morally good, uh, how do I have a moral, co- like clean conscience when I make this vote? If that's your focus, it's way messier than if it's how do I materially love my neighbors with this gift of being able to participate in politics that I've been given? That doesn't mean there's like no difficulty there 100% oh, yeah. is, but it's a lot easier than if your vote and your per- political participation is about signifying your identity with a group or signifying your moral purity or your you know personal identity, any of those things are so fraught. and I just want to, to push people our age especially to say it doesn't have to be that way. It could just be a tool that you use. And I think Christians have a reason to say that tool should be used for the sake of the most vulnerable. There will be tension when some people support some vulnerable people and not others, but at least that gives you a framework to kind of get started.
0: So tell us a bit about the name itself, liturgy and politics. I found that really catching because we came from a liturgical background. So I think it's a pretty cool name. But uh, where did it come from and what does it mean to you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I keep joking that we just like picked the two most controversial words that we could like (laughs) liturgy and politics just like upset everyone. Um, Yeah. So part of the heart of the book, um, more than even saying here's a specific political theology is more just to say Let's take a step back from the things that we cognitively think about politics and recognize the formative power of our emotions, our desires, our loves, and how that's, you know, had really negative political effects, right? We've been taken captive quite frequently in the church by political loves and loyalties that were wrong. But then also how Christian worship, um, I use that phrase liturgy really broadly, Christian worship, the language that we use, the stories we tell, the songs we sing, um, the sacraments, communion, baptism, those things are supposed to, in a much deeper level than even a sermon or a set of Bible verses, on a much deeper level, it can form better loves and loyalties in us. Um, And that goes back to this. I think just crossroads we're at, where people are so frustrated with the political options they have. And I think especially young people and especially young pastors, leaders, seminary students are saying, look, the people in my church seem really captivated by these other stories about the world, by a need to be physically secure, by a need to be, you know, patriotic to the point of idolatry, that, you know, they're so captivated by these things And I keep coming with a list of Bible verses and, you know, a bunch of information and good theology. And it's just like not reaching them. And, and I don't want to say, oh, that's a really hard, complicated problem. Let me young seminary student tell you the right answer, which I have, and you've never heard before, but instead to say maybe the history of the church, we've had really powerful resources and maybe we're discounting why they're so powerful because they They're repetitive, they're bodily, they draw on our emotions, and they might be able to reach people at a deeper level than, here's a sermon that outlines why you should care about immigrants, for example. You know, if someone has really been formed day in and day out by certain political messages about how they have to protect themselves against any immigrants, then you coming and telling, you know, a really great sermon that I think you should give that's great about how we should love immigrants and care for immigrants and refugees, that's awesome. But are there other things that might not just give them information, but might draw to love this story of the gospel and the story in scripture that tells us that, that we are the marginalized that God came to save. And then we, as the people of God, have a obligation to care for those who are materially marginalized in our communities. That might be able to reach people in a way that here's more information.
1: You hit on this a little bit already, but... Sometimes it seems like a person's political affiliation is more well known than their faith beliefs. Uh, why do you think that is? Uh, why do political party affiliations pull at us and divide us so much?
2: Mm. Yeah. Um, I think part of it comes down to, again, we've, we've kind of underestimated the power of politics. We've acted like we can engage in it as like an unaffected outsider and kind of poke and prod at the process. And it won't change us. It won't do anything to us. And I think the system that that we have and the language that we use to talk about politics and the emotions involved in it are all so much stronger than we recognize. Um, and so when you get involved in it, it's really easy to find a community that gives you identity that's based in your political party or candidate that you support or any of those things. And that's kind of the gist, like the central chapter of the book for me is I've built up, it's really dangerous (laughs) to get involved in politics. It very easily captures your loyalties and your loves. It does something to you. And then a chapter that goes, but also you have to do it. So (laughs) how do we resolve that? And then I think the answer is, is the worship of the church and kind of reclaiming some of those things. But I think the first step is realizing we've sort of acted like we wouldn't be changed by our participation. And we will be. And it's it makes a lot of sense that when you go to a rally or you turn on you know, a cable news network or whatever, there are not just information about the two parties. There's emotion and community and loyalty. And you learn in a deeper level than just information to be beholden to a group of people. And maybe maybe just trying to reach people in church with information hasn't made them as a part of a community and beholden to a community in the same way that, uh, people news and rallies have, um, maybe they actually know better how humans work (laughs) than we have, you know, acted like we know how humans work.
1: So then how does a Christian's political involvement then impact their Christian witness?
2: (sighs) Yeah. That's, that's the other like tricky part of it okay. is we think we can separate our lives into those two sections. Like, Oh, I can support, you know, whatever policies over here, but then the way I treat the people in my Sunday school class over here is a totally different. Those are super separate issues. Um, and I, I think we have to learn to think of our lives as more integrated and holistic than that. Um, a lot of people have asked me, you know, I'll, you know, part of the way that the book has been marketed uh, by the publisher is like, you know, you need to know that your faith informs your politics. And all these people have been like, yeah, duh. Like everyone says that everyone knows that. Like we all think we're doing that right, you know, but you just disagree with how I'm doing it. And my point is not so much that, you know, hey, heads up, your faith should inform your politics. I know we all kind of think that it should. But do we still have on some deep level, a division between the responsibilities and obligations that we have, to individuals on a totally personal relational level? And then the obligations and responsibilities that we have to our whole communities, to the way that we vote, you know, do we really think of those things as as spiritual material, kind of like I said before, higher, lower, different, different kind of world? And if if it's all going to burn, the world's all going to end, then why does it even matter what we do? All of those kinds of ways of thinking, I think, end up making us think that our faith is informing our politics, but in reality, we're still keeping them pretty separate.
0: You mentioned earlier about um, some idolatry in politics, and I found uh, chapter three really different, uh, really different, really interesting about different gospels. Um, mm-hmm. You presented different, yeah, different gospels besides the biblical gospel that we typically believe, and one in particular was the patriotic gospel. And uh, one of the reasons I found it interesting is that we've been doing a world religion series. And so when you were going through it, I was like, these are the same questions that like we ask guests about different world religions. And in particular, uh, you said that part of the problem, uh, well, back up. So we asked our guests, what is the problem with the world according to this religion? And what's the solution? And you said the problem is basically them, those other people who aren't us. And the solution, and I found this phrase really interesting, is the innate goodness Of our country. So that was really fascinating. Uh, Feel free to elaborate on that as well. But when did you begin to notice this patriotic gospel, which to me seems like a a different religion, a different worldview all by itself?
2: Yeah, I, so I kind of grew up in, um, I guess, a, a pretty patriotic family, but also just around a lot of patriotic families. My dad is in the military. So all of the things, you know, like 4th yeah. of July and, you know, all those things, but also just like military ceremonies that obviously are super patriotic and have lots of, they're sort of religious in the fact that they have lots of particular language and, you know, a formal structure to the way they do things. And you wear different clothes depending on your position and that, you know, so it's, it does have a sort of religious feel to it. And I think part of the reason that I've been so into attuned to the patriotic gospel is growing up around things that were pretty similar to that. Um, But also growing up in a family that was Christian and went to church. And I knew, I mean, from the time I was really young, I knew that my parents cared more about their church and their connection to the global community of faith than they did their country. I mean, my dad's in the military. He's obviously very patriotic. But my mom was also a missionary kid. And so she grew up all over the place and both of her sisters were missionaries. And so I think the, the combination of those two backgrounds just made me very aware that it was possible for Christians to care about the flourishing of their country because it's local to them, because of course they have, you know, a certain identification with the people that are close to them um, and pride in the work that they're doing, not just people in the military, but other people who kind of find their work to be a service to their country. I want to honor all of those things, but I also realized that the way that my family was able to honor their country while also recognizing that that was not their primary identity and their primary community was not actually very normal. (laughs) That like most people who were immersed in that kind of language and uh, traditions and, you know, the 4th of July stuff, but also every football game and every kind of school event and pledge allegiance every morning, like it was a lot harder I found for other families, even Christian families to not have that loyalty take preeminence. And again, it's not surprising because if we really believe what I think Christians have believed about humans for a very long time, if you're going to go back to Augustine talking about us as fundamentally lovers, it makes sense that the things that draw our affections are going to be really powerful in our lives. And they're going to fight for preeminence in our lives. They're not going to be content to just like take a corner of it. They're going to want to take the whole thing. And so if you're not really, really careful, if you're not, again, immersed in the worship and traditions of the church that should be calling you back to our character as a community that is global and historic and not just based in any kind of specific tradition or country or culture. Um, if you're not doing those things, then it makes perfect sense that being immersed in patriotic rituals and language, that would become the primary thing in your life. Um, and I think I talk, I think I tell the story in the book of, um, being at a military chapel, which is just very strange because there's all of these different uh, chaplains from totally different traditions. And so, like, every Sunday, someone's wearing different clothes and doing different liturgies, and it's like very interesting. Um, and someone prayed, I think it was right before Labor Day or right before Memorial Day. Um, they prayed, like, thank you, God, that my, that, that our responsibility or our lo- loyalty or something like that to our country doesn't conflict with our loyalty to you. And I just remember thinking, like, sitting in the pew, doing that thing where I'm like, I'm not going to be the embarrassing daughter that, like, makes a big fuss out of this. But when we get home, I'm going to talk about it. Because, like, that is not true. And it's comforting to think it's true. But, like, there is one loyalty that will take top spot. And if you think that they're never going to conflict ever, then you know which one has taken top spot. It's the one that you don't ever think will conflict with your loyalty to to the community of faith and to God.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when I read that. Um even after having many conversations with you and trying to educate myself, when I first read that, the not conflicting, I was like, "I guess that makes sense." And then I kept reading. I'm like, "Oh yeah! Oh gosh, she's right. It's so <laughs> opposite." Like even after um, learning more, it's like even still, my first reaction was to go, "Yeah, okay, sure." So, yeah. <laughs> so a Christian who is wanting to love their country as their place that they've um, you know physically call home, but have their faith community, have God, have the, um, authority in their life. What does good patriotism look like for that person? Like, what do you think that can look like, um, in the most ideal sense?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I want to start with something that doesn't sound like it's the basis of patriotism, but I think is, okay. which is a willingness to criticize your country. Um, I think especially as Americans saying, I, I I think, um, I think this is a line from Hamilton. No. What is it? I think it might be, oh gosh, I don't know who said this. I I will look it up and you can, you can put it in there. It's from a song. Um, but it says, I I don't hate my country. I just demand she keeps her promises. And it's like it for Americans who have a long history of really highfalutin kind of language about the goodness of our country. It would be quite patriotic to say that that she should look like these high-flown promises that you know were given, mm. um, and it would be quite patriotic and Christian to say I do sincerely desire the flourishing of my country because it's where I was born and God ordained that, and I I love the people who are near me. I think caring very locally matters, and so that includes locally in the sense of caring about your country, um, but that care has to include both. Pride in the place that you're from, in the sense that you recognize that it's that it's God's grace in your life that you've lived anywhere with any kind of comfort or security, which many Americans have, um, and then also a desire to to see it be both its highest ideals and also the best that it can be as a as a nation that will be in a fallen world, but that has the possibility of having Christians doing redemptive work and kind of making it better. And the fact that we tend to think of criticizing the country as unpatriotic is just that is the idolatrous part of
0: it that doesn't make sense I, when you're saying that it reminds me like I'm married it would be weird if um Phil and I never and I don't mean criticized in a negative way but if we never said hey I notice you're doing this I don't think this is healthy or good for you or good for us or right. good for whoever like saying those things even if it's hard to hear it builds each other up and it makes us um better people and so yeah. I think that that could translate into that same, um, criticism, not in a negative way necessarily, not like, Oh, I hate you kind of thing, but like, this is a problem and we we should be better than this. Another gospel you mentioned was the safety gospel and you touched on that already, but I, I, it was probably in seminary the first time I heard someone say like, Hey, I know it's all good and well for, to pray for somebody's safety, but just so you know, people don't pray for safety that much in the Bible. And I was like, what? Like, (laughs) and I started reading like, Oh my gosh, it's right. And so is this safety gospel thing? That's a political or not political. Um, American ideology as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, and, and all of the gospels in the book, like interact and kind of overlap Mm -hmm. in some places, but um, because part of the security gospel is my country should be safe. Like there should be no threat to the, uh, not only my country, but a specific kind of version that I have imagined of it. Like this should not be assaulted. Um, But I also think it, it, I I think I say in the book, there's like macro and and micro versions of this. There's like the individual version of Mm -hmm. I should be safe. I should be Physically safe at all times and at all costs. Like, even if it harms another person, I should protect myself at all costs. Um, And then macro versions, meaning both, um, you know, our bloated criminal justice system that says we should lock someone up instead of maybe rehabilitating them. Um, And if there's any risk to anyone, like, just that's the solution. Um, And then also, like I said, the really macro version of just don't let anyone dangerous into the country and relying on typically racist or xenophobic kind of stereotypes about people to prevent them from coming in. But a lot of it just comes down to is security the highest goal? Not that there isn't, you know, like you said, it's not wrong to pray for people to be safe on a plane ride or if they're going to another country to, you know, do mission work or something. But, but anyone who's doing that kind of work, for example, any missionary who's going, I have a friend who's um, in North Africa in a really dangerous place for a single woman in a Muslim majority country. And um, she does not go there because it's the safest thing to do, obviously. So she, she, she makes lots of choices while she's there to keep herself safe. um, As she's trying to share the gospel where that's not welcome, she's going to, you know, do it carefully. She's going to, especially as a woman at night, she's going to have someone else with her. You know, she's going to, she's going to make smart choices. But if security was the highest thing, she would never have gone there. And so I think it's just about recognizing when something has taken the wrongful place in our lives, when that has become the, the preeminent thing that we seek. Um, and also when we use it to justify evil for other people, when we use it to justify mistreatment or injustice of others, then then that's when you kind of know that it's gotten to a place that it, it shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. You know, I... When I think about safety, I'll often think about people saying like, oh, we need to be anti-terrorists and we shouldn't let these kinds of people into the country. But I've noticed this election season, I've been seeing a lot of people um, trying to protect protect against different ideologies or saying like Donald Trump ruined the country or don't elect Biden because then we'll all be Marxist. And like like these ideologies that we're also trying to protect from, um, that's what I was thinking of as you were describing that.
2: Yeah. And that's kind of the, the, there's something I say, I think it's really late in the book about one of the kind of logics of political involvement that I think Christians just don't have the choice of. And like, we just don't get to think this way is the, this is the most important election of my lifetime of your lifetime or our lifetime. Like if Trump wins again, the world will be over. If Biden wins the world will be over, you know, that kind of like apocalyptic way of thinking is not only wrong because we don't have the perspective to know that you couldn't possibly know what the most important election in your lifetime is, especially if you're young, you have no idea what's coming. You can't say that. Um, But also it just, it, it constrains our thinking. It's like you have two options. One of them is nuclear war. One of them is everyone is fine and has a puppy and you know, is great. <laughs> the then puppy, like, okay. you, you know, you have no other options, you know, everything has to take on this existential threat level. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is The language of fear is just a normal language in politics because if you can get people afraid enough of something, then they'll, they'll act even against maybe their better instincts or maybe their Mm -hmm. theological convictions. Um, and that's like the, the highest peak of the fear thing is to be like, this is the end of everything. Like we, if this person wins, that's the end. And I do think there are like totally reasonable ways to say, if Biden wins, if Trump wins, here are negative consequences that will happen. But when you turn it into this is the end of the world, then you're you're kind of you're preventing people from thinking creatively about how they can be involved politically, because suddenly it's life or death and then you have no
0: options. Yeah. Well, we're going to um, wrap this up in just a few minutes right after our next segment break. news flash.
1: Normally for our segments, we like to keep things light and amusing, but this week we're actually going to go more serious with Newsflash. You probably saw that last week, the actor Chadwick Boseman passed away. He was known for playing some really incredible characters from historical figures such as Jackie Robinson and James Brown to King T'Challa, better known as Black Panther and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He passed away uh, after a fight with colon cancer that started in 2016, which I found interesting because that was also the year that Captain America Civil War, which was his Marvel debut, it was the same year that was released. So during so much of this time when he was playing so many of these characters, he was suffering uh, from this cancer. And there's been several tributes rolling in from all sorts of people, but there's one story that I remember about him from a couple years ago that I think is just, it's just incredible. In June of 2008, he uh, was awarded at the MTV Movie Awards. He received the award for Best Hero, which he actually gave away to a gentleman named James Shaw Jr., who had recently intervened at a Tennessee Waffle House and prevented a shooting from happening. Uh, Bozeman said that receiving an award for playing a superhero is amazing, but it's even greater to acknowledge the heroes that we have in real life. So it's, of course, very sad uh, to see someone like this uh, pass away so young. But I think so much of what we can do when people pass is to remember the good that they did and the example that they set in this time where there's a lot of division, a lot of fighting. I think it's good to see kindness and people who go out of their way to acknowledge the good deeds of others. This has been newsflash. And we are back to wrap up our discussion about political theology. So, Um, Caitlin, we've mentioned this uh, book that's coming out soon. Who do you think will benefit most from reading this book?
2: Mm. Yeah. Um, So I wrote it mostly with fellow kind of seminary students or young pastors, church leaders um, in mind. But it's funny how you have like one intention. And now that I've had kind of the first round of people reading it, you see other things. So it's funny how many people have messaged me or emailed me the majority of them who are either they got an early copy to review it or they're in the launch team or something like that. Um, the majority of them that have been the most enthusiastic have actually just been younger evangelical Christians that maybe aren't even interested in doing ministry vocationally or aren't in seminary, but who have just been so exhausted by the political conversation and evangelicalism. And they kind of feel like they found someone else <laughs> who not only yeah. feels the same way and they can relate to, but also doesn't just leave us there. That was another part of my goal is I didn't want to just write sort of like, here's my story of how things were hard and, and how, how 2016 really woke me up to some problems in evangelicalism. I wanted to say the good news is our faith is bigger and wider and more beautiful than maybe some of the failings of certain leaders that we've seen. And that's been the most encouraging thing is to, is to talk to other people, young Christians who haven't left the faith, but who have kind of started to feel like they should distance themselves a little bit from either the church or from other Christian institutions. Um, And that's the other thing about the book. I I feel like I started to write a book about politics and I really wrote a book about the church. The bulk Mm -hmm. of it is just about how that should be the basis of our political work. And so that's the other encouraging thing to me is to hear from people who are saying, I've really started to feel like it's not worth it to be involved in my church. And this is reminding me that like that's, the basis of my political and, and social life. And I really just have to to recognize that there will be things that are, that are hard, but that God has given us this gift of community and it's worth fighting for. And it's worth mm. making better and, and seeing the places where our worship could look more historic and global and draw us closer to that community. Um, and so I think people that even aren't interested in ministry or in leadership or in seminary would also benefit from it.
1: And what attitude do you hope your readers will have when they approach the book?
2: Yeah, so I, um, there's a foreword to the book written by Michael Ware, who is really a wonderful guy. He uh, worked uh, with Obama during doing some of the faith initiatives and um, is just a really committed, faithful Christian who's also a Democrat um, and cares a lot about pushing his party to be better and pushing Christians who are both Democrats and Republicans to think more theologically about the faith. And the reason I make the note about the forward is because it's such a good, I never read forewords, but like I read a bunch before asking someone to write one for mine and most of them are not good. And he wrote a really good one. And my wow. favorite thing about it is he basically says, Hey, you have picked up this book. You have all sorts of you know, probably ideas and presuppositions about politics and about, you know, let's just imagine for a moment that your faith community, your church has commissioned someone in your church to spend a season of time thinking about this current moment and how we can respond to it. And then this person has brought you this report as a gift to your community. Will you just receive it as a gift? And I just love that he wrote it that way because that was my heart for it too, was just, I really want to reach people who might find themselves described in those gospels. Like Leo was saying, um, I don't want it to feel like a harsh criticism or, you know, kind of ostracizing you and saying, Oh, none of you are the real Christians. Like I've got it all figured out. But just to <laughs> say, as someone who's been in evangelicalism my whole life <laughs> and has grown up in it, I have some reflections from time spent studying this stuff and studying what Christians have said about politics for a long time. And I think I have some things from that study that I can offer to you. Um, And so I really hope that people, even though it's politics, and so we do come with all our presuppositions, I really hope that people read that forward and really, really think of it as my heart behind it is to is to give you a gift. And so I hope that's how people receive it.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed your forward. Um, I also love that you got um, and I need to look up michael ware and read more of his stuff i just recently was introduced to him because of your forward but i love that you got a democratic christian because i think some people think that that's not a thing but it is so (laughs) So, yeah yeah.
2: and i was i was a little nervous i was like are people gonna kind of know he worked for obama and like like oh none of that you know but you're right it's like i I, part of the goal is to maybe like stretch a little bit challenge a little bit hopefully that you know people can see that There's more room for us to cooperate on things than we realize.
0: Yeah. Well, how can listeners purchase your book? Yeah, you can get it basically
2: anywhere. Um, If you don't want to support the global mega giant Amazon, you can go to Barnes & Noble or to the University Press uh, website or to IndieBound. Um, Hearts & Minds Bookstore, which is a local Christian bookstore that you can order online from, that's just really supportive of authors. They just... Tweeted that they have a bunch of them, so you could order from there and support a local Christian bookstore. So
0: that's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you being here. It's been fun to talk to you, and um, yeah, just be able to share this vision that you've, or more than a vision, that this this book that you have spent so much time working on. And I'm so excited for you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. So how can our listeners connect with you on uh, social media, your website?
2: Yeah. um, I spend way too much time on Twitter at Caitlin Chess and just started sort of blogging again slash putting info on the website. So the website is just CaitlinChess.com.
0: Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes so you don't have to worry about how to spell it.
2: That's really good.
0: (laughs) Well, um, we're so thankful for everyone who is listening. Um, if you believe in what we're doing at Apologetics Simplified and um, fostering discipleship and evangelism and sharing stories like this, please consider supporting us on Patreon, or you can make a one-time gift at LeahChapman.org/donate. And we would greatly appreciate the support. Thank you so much for listening. God bless.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Apologetic Simplified. Make sure to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app.
0: You can learn more at LeahChapman.org, or you can also click donate to make a one-time gift or sign up for monthly giving on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening.